Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Digital marketing strategist and founder of the boutique agency, Social Abundance Marketing, Wendy Manganero knows that the best social media doesn't start on a particular platform or with a marketing tactic, but instead consistently marketing where your target market hangs out. That is gold advice. If you're watching or listening, just take that right now (laughs) and also stick around because Wendy is going to share her story of having childhood leukemia for many years. So Wendy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to doing this podcast with you. Me too. And I appreciate your patience with the technical difficulties because they've just been all day long today. <laughs> I don't know why. Can you take us back and tell us when it started, how long, and how was your life saved? You know, I, I natural trial childbirth. My mom had no issues. And at the age of um, about four to five weeks, my mother kept bringing me back to the doctor saying, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And, and my pediatrician at the time gets kept pretty much telling her she was an over worrisome mother. (laughs) And, um, and the neighbor where we live said, well, maybe you should try my pediatrician. Um, Because by the time I was like, five and a half weeks old, my stomach had swollen up. And then he kept saying that it was um, just uh, jaundice. I mean, anything that was like it was, but I wasn't sick. And uh, the neighbor had me go to a different pediatrician. And thank goodness, because they ran the test and uh, confirmed a diagnosis of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And by the time they got me into a program, my parents were working class people. I don't think they had great insurance at the time, you know, like they just, the pediatrician from New Jersey knew about a new program coming out at Sloan Kettering, which was uh, medication-based. And so it was a trial uh, program. Not long after they had just done the trial program there for chemo. And for a lot of times, a long time, I thought it was from the the chemo program, but this was separate for pediatrics for um, pediatrics. And so I went to Sloan Kettering and they basically told my mom that I had about six months to live, that I was that far along uh, for waiting pretty much those six weeks. So it, and you know, we've never gotten a real answer why I was born with it, but I was born with it, which is very rare. What did your treatment look like And I mean, was surgery even an option? And if not chemotherapy, what did you do? I mean, what was that even like? So from, you know, obviously I was a baby, so there's some, thankfully that I don't remember. I remember getting, but I I do remember, you know, I spent a long time in the hospitals and I, and I did go into remission once my mother pretty much lived at Sloan Kettering. Uh, We were 45 minutes outside of the city. Um, I had my older sister, my father stayed with her and um, my mom lived in the hospital with me and she would take turns with my grandmother. And so basically what they did is they put me on this trial medication at the time 
Um, the other thing is, is because there was like, they desperately needed blood um, donors in that time and they didn't know who's going to be a match and not a match. And my father worked down at the docks in, um, in Secaucus, New Jersey and uh, Weehawken, New Jersey. And I'm sure this is not talked about now. I don't, for the lack of political cor correctness, but he was a longshoreman. <laughs> you know, when he found out his grandbaby had leukemia, he made all of the guys at the dock go get blood. He was like, no, you're going to go get blood. So there was this mass amount of people going into New York um, during this blood shortage to see who was a match to me because I needed, you know, transfusions. And, and it, the crazy thing about it is half of them had some sort of other illnesses they never knew about until they gave blood for me. There was a lot of hepatitis cases that they did not know they had. <laughs> that so, is so serendipitous yeah. and amazing. And I even got chills when you were talking about it. Was the goal for you to have a bone marrow transplant? They, they would test my bone marrow every uh, so often. And after, you know, after the diagnosis, even the last time I remember going to get a bone marrow trans, uh, test was at six years old. That was the last one I needed. It was for the following three years. So the, the goal was to, and I never needed it, thankfully, um, about a year into the diagnosis, I had actually gone into um, recovery from the medication. Medication worked. Unfortunately, my overzealous father was really, 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 really excited and wanted to bring me to a Christmas party and did. And I might've gotten pneumonia right afterwards. And so my lung collapsed and shortly, shortly after that, they, they said I had had it again. So all of the treatment had to start back up again. Oh my God. So how long were you in remission? So I was in remission for about four months and then went back out. Right. And so, you know, I consider myself really blessed. I know that people who have cancer, the more time they go in and out of remission, the more time likely. So to be sitting here at 46 years old, and I know that women don't like to tell their age, but I know I'm not supposed to be sitting here. And if it wasn't for the doctors at Sloan Kettering for trying new things and being brave enough, and I wouldn't be here today. And I'm really more than aware of that. Um, and I have been my whole life because um, they were trying to save children. And, and, you know, some of the stories that I remember is I didn't like my pediatrician as soon as we walked into the room <laughs> because they would give me bone marrows, but she was the nicest person in the hallway. Right. And I, and my mother always raised me with the fact that doctors, you know, it may seem like they don't have a great bedside manner, but the truth of it is, especially when you work in something like pediatric cancers, they're trying to get through the day too. In one of the most difficult fields to constantly go in and tell a parent, this is what's happening with your child. This is or is not working. My treatment was basically this um, medication at the time that was not heard of. It was constantly checking my bone marrow. They also did a surgery when I was less than six months old. They had put a, it's, it's not a shunt because everybody tells me it's not a shunt. It's a port that they put in my head. And it's actually still there. It's the size of a, they call it the Rio Maya shunt, but it's not really a shunt. It's really a port. But what it did was because I was so young and I pull out all of the things they'd be trying to feed me and I pull everything out. So the safest thing that they learned was if they put this in your head, you couldn't really get to it to take it out. 
So they did this brain surgery on me and added the shunt in. And then when I went into remission, my mother said to them, do I really need to have her at brain? I mean, she's been through some collapsed lung and, you know, like in and out of the hospital, testing her bone marrow all the time. Do we really have to open her up if we don't, you know? And they said, no. So I think it was about, um, they always told me to be careful with my head. <laughs> I certainly had a ceiling tile at work one day fall on me. Of course, they were like, you have to go to the hospital. I'm like, I'm fine. But so my school has just basically grown over it. It what? just grew completely like it's yes. part of me. Have you seen like a scan or anything? Oh yeah. No, I've seen the scan. It's there. It's there. If you can, and, and it does, it's like the size of a half of a tennis ball. Mm-hmm. That's big. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad that I have all my hair, and, <laughs> and, but yeah, so no, I, I, you know, and, and I live with that knowing that. And, and for a lot of years, I was very afraid of like, if anything happened, but once they realized that my skull had grown over it, they're like, you're fully protected. There's nothing that can happen to you because of it. Like you're, but it's been integrated into my body. So I don't even, and it's an interesting thing because I, I grew up as a child with lots of scars, not necessarily realizing how lucky I am just to have scars until I was old enough to realize how lucky I am to have scars. <laughs> Would you mind telling us about the scars? Yeah, I have. Uh, well, obviously I had one in my head. I have. Um, and again, the doctors at Sloan Kettering were incredible. When I, when my lung collapsed, you know, obviously they opened me up. So I have a scar under my breast line that you can't tell, you can't see, like, I'm amazed they got it right for me to grow so that you wouldn't know that I had a collapsed lung. It's literally under my breast. Nobody would ever know that I have a very deep incision that goes underneath. That's amazing. Yeah, they were. And I don't know how they did that because I was so young, but that was part of, you know, despite saving my life, they were also trying not to scar me any further, which I'm like, to me, the most utmost caring doctors, like, especially when parents are like, just, just, just save her, just save her. Um, so, and then I have two scars on the inside of my, um, where my ankles are on either side. And again, port lines. So I have those. And then as I got older, the truth of the matter is I'm more, um, preceptive to cancer. So I can't go to a doctor without saying you have pre-cancer or something. I mean, I just, you have pre, okay, what are we taking out next? You know, my father, unfortunately died of melanoma um, about 13 years ago. And, and of course, then I was like, oh, I really haven't gotten my skin checked, (laughs) but yeah. And thank goodness I kind of, that kind of happened because I already was, developing pre-cancer on my face and they thought it was a little bit and it had spidered underneath. And, and so I have like, I know there's a scar, but I have a scar on my lip because they had to remove that. Like I've, they're always like, yep, every six months you have to get this checked and that checked. And I'm like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) In reality, I I really truly believe that Sone Kettering did such an amazing job that I'm fairly healthy in, in, in the, in the real terms of things. Like it's, um, there's only been a few times that I remember being so sick and them going, looking at my blood cells and going, it's really not right, but it hasn't been cancer. It was just bad infections or I feel blessed because of that. That's amazing. I'm curious about something you said that 
it wasn't chemotherapy. It was medication. Was this like the precursor to Gleevec or, or do you know? And could you I tell us about it? And you know what? And I've tried to look on Sloan Kettering's website because like I said, right before that, and I said, I went home to my mom. I'm like, so was I part of those chemotherapy trials that they started the year before? And she said, no, you never got had to get chemotherapy. She said, this medication they put you on. And again, it had to be put you know, I had to get it intervened. I stayed at the hospital for a long time to get it, but she's like, they, they didn't know if it was going to work, but they tried it. And because they were trying to save you from getting bone marrows and they were trying to save you from getting chemo because they were trying to save you from, you know, suppressing your immune system even more. And what's, what's amazing about that is like, she's like, we didn't know if it was going to work. Like everybody thought we were crazy for not doing anything traditional, but the traditional things back then weren't working. I mean, the reality is that more people were passing away from, from childhood cancers back then than not. It's almost um, bittersweet because obviously I follow kids with cancer and stuff. And when I see them not make it, I'm like, where did something go really wrong? Like, you know what I mean? Because, because I know we've come so far and I know that like the researchers and the doctors and We've come so far. We've come so far from where we started. And kids like me didn't make it at all. You're, you're absolutely right. And I mentioned before I hit record that a great book about this time period and these drugs that were being tested and developed is called The Death of Cancer. And, and that was really the beginning of medical oncology as a, as a field because of chemotherapy. I think it's so interesting that you didn't have chemo because it it does, it just destroys your immune system. If you can do something else, um, why not do it? So Mm -hmm. kudos to your parents for, for going for and doing it. I'm curious, you mentioned you have a sister quite a bit older and what kind of impact do you think it had on her or your relationship that you were in the hospital so often those first couple of years? So I think for her, my sister and I have a great relationship. We really do. She's, but I think for her, like it ended up a lot of time by herself. I mean, and she was an old, I, she, you know, she's seven years older than me. So she had time by herself, but you know, here she thinks she's going to have time with this little sister. If I can tell you that, that when I was home and when I was better, it did not stop any of the, um, you know, usual teasing from a sister or siblings, <laughs> like none of that stopped. God love her. She, she, she might've been a little jealous that I got little attention because I was sick and you know, like it didn't any of that. So she would tell me that my family picked me up from a jungle when felt bad for me. Like they, she just would tell me crazy things. And I'd be like, really? Like, I know that it was hard for her because, and this is what I should said. There's a couple of things to know is one. I went with through withdrawal systems, uh, uh, symptoms from these, um, drugs horribly when I came off of them. So they were narcotic of development. So I, I do not drink. I do not do anything because I know that I was addicted to drugs at the age of three. It's basically what happened. Like you can't give a child that much narcotics for pain. And every time that happened, every time they switched medications, changed the dosages, I would go through withdrawals. And as a result of that, my mother would have to reteach me after the year one how to talk and walk for the first three years. And I did have hair loss from it, like there was, and my hair didn't grow normally and stuff like that. So my sister did feel like it was a, you know, not that she didn't love me, but I think she was very grateful when I wasn't sick anymore because 
there was so much time that was spent with her kind of getting sent away to her, my grandmother because my parents were always with me. And the, the fact that we lived 45 minutes away, it wasn't like the hospital was around the corner. It was, we were driving from North Jersey 45 minutes into New York City. There was always one parent missing or a grandparent coming in or an uncle or, um, and I think that affected her in the essence, like that's hard to be like, okay, it's us and now it's me, you know, me yeah. and now it's me and all of these people that, weren't really raising me prior to this. I am sorry for your sister, but I am so happy for you. And Mm -hmm. it's so important that you stay with your kids. Right. It's if if you can, if they'll let you. Yeah. It's, I love that your parents were able to figure it out. Um, Mm -hmm. even though it sounds like it took a tremendous amount of juggling and I want to ask you, did having that diagnosis at such a young age and surviving it, did that have any impact on your childhood other than your relationship with your family? Everything, everything, everything I did, be careful, you'll get cancer again. My whole life was on restriction. It's such a strange thing to me because now as an adult, I can see it. I'm not great at going along with things. (laughs) not good at that. And I say that in, you know, like, and it's so funny because it it goes into my work life. It goes into my family life. Like if it's like somewhat normal, I'm like, well, well, maybe not, you know, like not in in the essence of like, it's just kind of not where I come from. And, And I think it's because I was always told you'll get sick, you'll get sick, you'll get sick. But I was like, at some point in time, and it, and it was like, don't push yourself in school, you'll get sick. Don't push yourself in your career, you'll get sick. Don't put like, and I know it was out of love but it didn't sit well with me because somewhere inside for a long time, and I'm going to like drop this crazy bomb. So you sit in the hospital long enough with other parents that have children with cancer, you're going to form develop, you know, form relationships. And there was, there was another family there. I won't say their names because I don't know what happened to them after this, but, um, they had a daughter and I remember like, this is the things I remember. I remember that little girl coming over and us crawling around our floor. Like, and I, I guess because of some of the medications, like I, my mom's big thing was like, I would spend hours crawling on the floor, like on a carpet, picking lint up and moving it. I don't know. It was just this journey. She was a little bit younger than me. I remember. And she, um, this little girl went into remission at the same time I did when Adam remission around the same time, either right before or right after I did. And two weeks after I had gotten the call, like my mother was told that I was in remission again, family was still at the hospital and they called my mom from the hospital back then when they're, you know, pay phones, but they were still inside all excited because their daughter had been put in, you know, had gone into remission. They left Sloan Kettering and was hit by a drunk driver. Are you kidding me? Oh, and the little girl died and the aunt died and the mother was, uh, she was paralyzed for the rest of her life. And my mom's like, I just didn't know what to do with that. Like, I just didn't know. But when you grow up with, um, out of love, don't do this, you'll get hurt. And then this strange guilt of survivor's guilt that you don't understand because this other child, like, you're like, well, what makes me different that I'm here? Somewhere in me, I've always looked for, okay, then why am I here? 
And so I really do push the envelope a lot for a while. I'll I'll admit it was in negative ways, right? Like felt like a lot of pressure as a young adult. And then somewhere I was like, no, 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 no. If you're really supposed to be meant to be here, you're meant to be here. So if that's the case, why don't you look for what that is, as opposed to pushing the envelope of trying to dare yourself into like, go ahead, protect me now, God type of thing. So like, (laughs) I had to go through this kind of like metamorphosis to get to a point of in my life where like, okay, why am I here? And if, and if it is just to be kind to other people, let them know that first of all, doctors are valuable in the sense that they do the best they can. And I love working with physicians because they do the best they can. And at the end of the day, right, they're just, they're tools of what can be done. They're literal, just tools, like human tools of like, this is the best we can do for you, right? To me, I'm like, first of all, I don't think doctors and in, in professionally do enough to tell their stories. I just, for mm. the record, because I think that there's stories, things that they've done that I think need to be noted by the community. But a lot of times as patients, we go, well, here's all the things they did wrong, right? But pay, but doctors can be wrong in the essence that they're just doing the best they can with the information and knowledge they have. But my point of this is, is that at some point in time, this metamorphosis went to, okay, maybe I'm here for a reason. And although you are all trying to protect me for your good, I get it. I know it. It's out of love. I know my mom sat hours and hours and hours at that hospital and didn't leave and didn't eat and worried about how she was going to financially get through this. And, and my father, you know, like I get that, but what I really get is that if they could do all of that, then it's my job to go and see what I can do good in this world. Oh, how long did it take you to come to that realization? Oh, probably in the last 15 years I'm, that I really got it. Like till my mid twenties, I was just, I was like, I could not, con- I'm like, I don't understand why I'm here. I don't like, But because of that, I've always pushed the envelope. I was like, please don't tell me not to go to school. Please don't tell me not to get that full-time job, have a full-time, go to school full-time. And then please don't tell me why you can't do something. <laughs> I'm really kind of like, I'm really uh, big into the idea of find out why you're here in the essence of doing something that you love to do and go 150% at it. There's nothing you can lose by that. Have you read the book? Start with why? I think you would love that book. I have not. It's I a have good not. one. I felt like he was already preaching to the choir because I know my why, but yeah, I, I really loved it. Um, I want to comment on something you said about that other is a little girl, right? Mm-hmm. One funny one, not so funny (laughs) when you described yourself crawling around on the floor with the lint, it reminded me of the, the only time in my life that I've ever been, I guess what would have been stoned. I wasn't even sure, but I accidentally (laughs) took within like an hour's time, an allergy pill, which I almost never, ever need or take and a full Ambien, which I almost never take Mm -hmm. a full one if I need sleep, but I took them at pretty much might as well been the same time. And I was completely hallucinating. I thought the floor had three levels. I thought my hat rack, which has all these hats and it stands alone. I thought it was like moving toward me. And I was pretty sure this was not normal. (laughs) I haven't done it before since, but I'm just wondering like maybe in your mind, yeah, there there was something moving in the carpet, you know, (laughs) something. 
but my mom is like convinced I love lint. <laughs> like I'm like I haven't liked the clean since, so I don't know about that. <laughs> like, it just makes you wonder it. what was going on in your little child mind. Yeah. Um, and then on on the flip side of that, I I won't go into my story except to say that I raised my sister and I was her parent and caregiver, and so I raised her from the time she was eight until she died from cancer at the age of fifteen, and very early on, she and another young woman were the same age diagnosed within two weeks of each other. And so that very early time at children's hospital, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. I went through orientation with her parents. We often saw her at follow-up visits and I was so jealous when I heard behind a curtain because she, and they shared a room often that, that she was doing better after surgery. Mm-hmm. and, and that she, the tumors responded to chemotherapy. I, I, I just, I felt horrible for being jealous as a parent, but my sister wasn't having any results like that. And of course they were two radically different cancers and my sister was metastatic. So it was a totally different thing. And I found out later that she did recover. She turned 16, got her driver's license and it relapsed and she ended up dying on her 18th birthday. And I sent her parents a card and keep thinking about that, what that would have been like if my sister had gotten better. And of course you have all those memories, but then, but then to deal with it again and then not make it because you've made it once. So, so I would, I would be in the mindset, well, we'll get through it again. We got through it one time. We'll get through it again. I can just only imagine. And I really feel for your mother, not knowing what to say. She just, she's like, I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't understand how to handle that. She's like, here, my daughter is healthy and I'm grateful. And I can't even begin to, because of the stress. And, you know, like, and I understand that. I think that for any caregiver, like, because I did help take care of my dad. And I think as a family member, the stress of that, like any type of caregiving and you want your person to get better. Right. And then when you hear this from some somewhere else, you're like, what, what do I do with that? Right. Yes. Because there is a jealousy if they get that. I mean, I, I think that's all normal. I think that's, that's human emotion because we want the best for those we love, like no matter what. And so I think that, that really my mother and I, my mom would say to me, she's like, I just, I always felt guilty. And then we lost touch because I just didn't know what happened here. I was, I was like, so relieved, but I was so tired by then too. Of course. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm going to phrase this question a little bit differently than I would for a lot of people. Actually, no, I'm going to ask you a different question. Forget that one. Um, knowing what you know now and what you've told me about how you were constantly pushing the limits and, and you didn't know why you were here. What advice would you give your 16 year old self? I think the biggest advice is, is that, um, I know this is going to sound like a strange thing. I really at 16 struggled. I really, I hated all the limits that were put on me. I really did again out of love, but I think I would give my 16 self the advice of always listen to yourself first. Like, you know, you, you know what your limit is inside. I think a lot of cancer patients go through this with their loved ones. They're all so worried about them that they forget to start listening to their own insides. I'm really clear today. I get one shot at this life. 
So it's really important for me, if I get one shot at this life, I want to bring as much love to other people in my work, in my personal life, in my family, as I was given. And I can't do that if everybody's always so afraid of me living. Oh, that's so well said. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. I want to ask you this too. Another question I don't get to ask very often. (laughs) So how is your experience? I'm going to say as a childhood cancer survivor or instead of a patient different than being a caregiver for your father who also had cancer. I think it's different. And, and please know that I had a very rough uh, relationship with my father. So this was a lot of amends being able to make like, you know, that when I tell you I had a rough time, part of this was I was really angry at my dad because after I got better, he left about three at six. Once I went through that last final, um, like him and my mother divorced and um, he really wasn't around. I don't, whatever their issues were, it really had nothing. It did or didn't have to do with me, but Um, So for me, being a caregiver, it was a healing process. It was a complete healing process because that's really how I learned when I healed my relationship with my father, that it wasn't about the parent he was, it was about the human being I was being. I can spend the rest of my life going, these are all the mistakes you guys made, (laughs) or I can spend the rest of my life going, you did the best you could with what you knew. I don't think it was out of anything other than I feel like we all come here as at some point in time. And we, I think we're there. We have all the answers and then we lose them growing up. <laughs> like we, lose, we lose our confidence. We lose all of that growing up. And then we're trying to relearn. And for me, I place a lot of blame when I was putting myself under those limits going, you're limiting me. You're, then this is the reason why my life is the way I, it is, as opposed to, And even as a caregiver, like got to take care of my dad. And at some point in time, he had gotten to take care of me prior, right? Like now I'm my mom's caregiver. She doesn't have cancer, but I'm a mom's caregiver. If I can change that mindset to, I get to, as opposed to, I have to, it makes caregiving so much better. Oh gosh. I love that. You know, deep down to your core that your parents' divorce had nothing to do with you, right? Yeah, nothing, nothing nothing to do with me. But, you know, like growing up, I was like, well, it was, you know, and that's the thing is that like, I almost had to reprogram a lot of stuff, you know, at some point in time. And I think that's a, a, a thing all children have to go through, right? Like they did the best they can. Now it is my choices about how I want to carry out what was given that was great and not carry out with, I realize that it's not so healthy. We become responsible, but it took me a little bit longer because I was in a lot of the blame of that. It's easy to be a victim. Right. Right. Exactly. I I love what you said about children. I I love kids. And I actually used to be a teacher and I taught young kids and I taught middle school and I taught adults and always thinking that one would be better than the other, but not necessarily true. (laughs) But I always really loved eight years old, like seven, eight years old, because they have their personalities and their thoughts Mm -hmm. and their feelings and opinions. But, and this may be different now, I haven't taught in a long time, but they're not quite tainted or affected by the world yet. You know, they're still going to tell you the brutal, honest truth. And then something happens around nine years old, around like fourth grade. And you see kids that the year before were fine and happy and just being who they were trying to conform 
to whatever that norm or they perceive the norm to be. And it's so hard to see that. Like it's, it's hard. And, and I think that that's when kids really learn to lie to like really well is <laughs> around that age. And mm-hmm. for me, when I was teaching, one of the hardest things to see was to see a jaded kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, that was hard. When you mentioned that about children, I totally agree. You get kind of trapped in society and yeah, it just continues. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S and only one, <laughs> A lot of people try to squeeze in three. You get one. What would it be and why? This is a difficult one for me. I I think the biggest thing I would do to change healthcare today. This is this is difficult because I see it from so many views. Okay, really one. Okay, so my one thing would be that I think I would educate younger on self-care so you know to get the medical attention you need because we educate on shots and we educate on what you have to do we don't educate on the why and the why really is is that if we are not up to our optimal healthy self then we can't be of service to anybody else in this world that's brilliant, Wendy. It is. I don't think I learned self-care, self-care really until my forties. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for the thriver rapid fire questions? Sure. Let's go for it. Let's try. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Beach, desert, or mountains. I moved back to the Jersey shore. So definitely beach. <laughs> Where'd you move from? I was, I lived here, moved to Louisville, not a mountain girl, not a valley girl back at the beach. <laughs> beach boys beatles or rolling stones beach boys dad's favorite i love the beach boys too mm-hmm. what is one word that best describes you i'm get, i had to think about this because i read it but uh, it's definitely miracle mm. I, I know i am and, and I, I don't take that in any other unhumble way every day i'm here is a miracle oh gosh that's amazing um before you die what is the last song you want to hear so it was my dad's favorite. It was, it's, it's very uncommon. It's called The Last Farewell by Robert Whitaker. And it's about a, um, a seaman that goes to shore and has to say goodbye. And my father loved the sea. And so, and we, it's what we played at his, his uh, memorial. Aww. How about the last meal you want to eat? Okay, after 10 years of living in Louisville, New York pizza. <laughs> can't be from anywhere else it's got to be a very big slice of new york pizza (laughs) oh that's awesome are you saying that we can't do pizza in the south is that what you're saying oh you know where i I know let's not go there but anyway new york pizza would be my answer (laughs) love it the last person you want to see my son they told me i'd never have kids they did because of the treatment you had I, wow. I grew up believing I'd never have children. And when I, so I kept having ovarian cysts. They were horrible. And somebody said, well, when you get pregnant, they'll go away. And I'm like, well, I'm going to have them for the rest of my life. Right. So I go to the doctor thinking I have another ovarian cyst. And she goes, well, we're going to do a pregnancy test. And I was like, well, this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> we can't. And she came back and she said, you're pregnant. And I was like, 
no, I'm not. She's like, yes, you are. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I'm arguing with my OBGYN that I'm pregnant. I still have that test. Do you really? (laughs) Definitely Uh, my son for that reason. The last words you want to speak. All right. I had to think about this one. I really did. You can edit that part out. I don't care. But the reality, I was like, well, what would I say? (laughs) That's kind of deep. So I had to write it down because, but, but really I think that what I, and and it would be to my son that I would say this, I'm going to try not to get emotional, but I would say, remember to live and love, not by the world's expectations of you, but your God-given spirit within, and you will always live in a world full of wonder, love, and grace, which will be beyond anything you or others could have imagined for you. Oh, Wendy, does your son have any idea? Not really. He's on the spectrum. He's awesome now. How old is he? 16. Oh. Super smart. Like beyond. Yeah. He, he's a miracle too. Yeah. He's definitely a miracle. Wow. Aside from cancer, you, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? The one thing that I would recommend is getting into whatever type of cancer you have that society, whether like for us, for me, it was leukemia and knowing all about it because the most important thing you're going to do is meet other patients and caregivers from that because it it will unisolate you. I appreciate that on a deep level because I was searching so much for people who had the same disease as my sister, but she had a very adult type of liver cancer and we never found anyone at the time. That was a long time ago, but I think that's really, really sound advice. If people want to get in touch with you, because clearly from your bio, you know exactly what you're talking about with <laughs> social media marketing. I'm going to vouch for you just from that bio alone. I wish people would listen. If people want to get in touch with you. What's the best way? So they can email me, Wendy at socialabundancemarketing.com. They can go to my Facebook uh, page or they, I'm really big on LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time there. Just send me a connection request. I'd love to connect. I will definitely send you a PM. I try to get to know all of my connections personally because that's what being social on marketing is supposed to do. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.